Hello and welcome to episode 13 of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is Brian Kennedy. Brian is one of Ireland's best love singers with a career spanning over 30 years. He was raised on the Falls Road in Belfast in the 60s and 70s at the very height of the Troubles. He moved to London when he was just 18 years old and he quickly gained work as a backing vocalist for his fellow countryman Van Morrison. He was also signed to a major recording contract at the time with RCA and he was managed by the mighty Simon Fuller who is of course the Spice Girls and American Idol Svengali. He has performed the world over with music royalty such as Stevie Wonder, Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan, just to name a few. Brian was the first singer to record the perennial classic You Raise Me Up, which was a big UK hit for him in the early noughties. He's performed on Broadway with Riverdance, he's represented Ireland in the Eurovision, he was a judge on the first two series of The Irish Voice and he's written two novels also. When I met up with Brian, we chatted about growing up amidst the horrors of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the homophobic abuse he suffered from his own family, what it was like living in London during the AIDS crisis, why he stayed celibate for a large part of the 80s, why he feels really uncomfortable with the use of the words daddy and son in gay culture and lots of other things also. As you will hear during this interview, Brian has overcome so much adversity and hardship in his life and in spite of all that, he somehow maintains a really positive outlook which I just think is incredible. I know it sounds a bit cheesy and trite, but he really is someone who is genuinely inspirational. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. Hello Brian and welcome to my podcast. Thanks for agreeing to do the interview. My pleasure. How are you today? I'm great. I started my day off uh, by going to the gym and uh, getting really, you know, pushed around properly. Was it an Uh, intense session? Yes, I do these now because of a post-surgery thing. I've got to be careful what I do and how I do it. But we've now uh, developed with Paul Byrne, who's my mate and his gym, Body Burn. uh, We devised a really intense half hour session that we do that we basically don't stop for half an hour. And my goodness, it's making a difference. I feel stronger. My muscles are tighter like they, they yeah. were before the, the surgery and everything. And my, my walking is better. My and my head is better, you know, because yeah. you come out of that uh, pretty exhausting and, ex- and exhilarating at the same time. So, yeah, I really, if I can start my day with something like that, then it makes me feel a whole lot better. Yeah, it really sets you up well for the day, yeah, doesn't it? it does. So just as you mentioned there uh, earlier, yeah. you underwent quite a bit of treatment for cancer, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So where are you now with that? Is that completed or? Well, this is year four. So so I first got diagnosed with uh, rectal cancer in 2016, around about July. Um, and then it started a series of treatments. Like I, I did five weeks of radiation okay. and then two weeks of chemotherapy in a little bottle that went into my port in my Is chest. That seriously physically draining yeah, and mentally. And, and absolutely. And especially there's a, an accumulative thing that happens. So then we finished all of that and we waited and we waited. And the tumor did initially shrink, but, um, but then it started to get thicker. 
And in the middle of, middle of all that, I was trying to look at alternative therapies because if you have any public profile at all and you announce, like I did, that I was starting a journey with cancer with, with Matt Cooper on his show, people, of course, were emailing me saying, don't do chemo, do do chemo, don't do radiation, take cannabis oil. You know, I know this healer in you know the middle of nowhere. And so I did uh, weigh up everything. I did try cannabis oil. I did try hyperbaric um, oxygen therapy, which is simulated deep sea diving, basically. Um, and also vitamin C IVs. I did some of that. That's where I met Vicky Phelan, okay. weirdly enough, because she was in the next chair to me. Um, and slowly but surely, certainly I wasn't feeling worse, but the tumour, because I, I kept one eye on oncology always, of course, and they were still able to tell me, look, it, the tumour's gotten a bit thicker. It hasn't metastasized. It hasn't gone up into your bile or anything else. If anything, it's going down lower and Initially, I thought that was a good thing, but it was actually a terrible yeah. thing because once they then have to put any kind of knife into your rectum, into that muscle area, because it's all made up of muscles and the sphincter and all of that, then it's basically lost. So the harsh reality came that I was going to have to get um, at least one colostomy bag, if not two, mm. permanently for the rest of my life. And at my age, you know, I was 49, 50. I was thinking, oh, it's too young, it's too young. But then I started getting educated about it and saying how it was a lifesaver. I met a most amazing surgeon, Scottish guy, called uh, Ian Jenkins, who works in Harrow in England. And he's the, the head, head man in terms of this surgery. I didn't have the proper insurance it turns out that was a big fuck up so we had to then think about how do we put how do we get the money yeah, together quickly because the clock was ticking i mean yeah. you're talking about you don't get much change out of about 100 grand Jeez, sterling yeah you know even just to stay in the hospital was about 60 grand wow. just to stay there so is that treatment completed now or is it um, still ongoing or I've do finished, you wait for year five to get completely free well, or? as far as i understand um now that my rectum is basically in my waist so when I have colonoscopies now, yeah. I can do them without sedation. So they send the camera right into the, the you know, it's called a stoma and stoma is yeah. Latin, Latin for hole. So yeah. they send the, the, the camera into the new stoma hole and that is able to go in there. With, I mean, it's the strangest sensation in the world and you can feel it going into your body. But it's, there's a lot less colon there, obviously. And we were able to tell very quickly. I just had one in December. All they found were two little polyps that were harmless. And he said, look, I'll take those off while we're sitting here. I didn't even feel it. I was wide awake. I could see what he was doing on the screen. So that's the last, he said to me, I probably won't need to see you for about two years. God, you've really been through it, haven't you? Yeah. It's quite a traumatising experience, it, it, all of it, isn't it? It was. I mean, I didn't realise I would have to learn to walk again, for example, after the surgery. That took quite some time. And then the dramatic weight loss, you know, because I hadn't eaten properly. So I lost about four stone. Oh, God. And that was just, I mean, I looked so bad. I saw photographs of myself the other day. Uh, we were comparing you know, before and after a year between the photographs. Mm. And I looked like possibly my old ill granddad on this side. Yeah. And then a return to health on the right hand side. Just extraordinary. You look the body. picture of health today, don't you? I feel you? like I feel great. I've just been in yeah. the gym. I'm having a coffee with you yeah. and a chat. It's good. You've got a real fighting spirit about you, don't you? I seem to. I, I, I think it's also to do with the Falls Road with West, West Belfast, where I grew up. There seems to be an innate survivor in me and a robustness that I just didn't realise was there quite so profoundly until you know your life is threatened like yeah. that that's perfect timing that was going to be my next question so that's a, a perfect segue into I was going to ask you about your childhood yeah so as you just mentioned you did grow up on the Falls Road in the 1970s so that was really the the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland wasn't yeah. it yeah so can you tell me a bit more about all of that well I mean it was a I, I think it's funny when people call it trouble because you know I, I think of it as a time of war you know I was I have a new 
song on their new record called Child of War. I was absolutely a child of war. I saw people shot dead in front of me. I saw bombs go off. I saw shoot soldiers, you know, soldiers shoot people they shouldn't have. I saw one of them smash in a woman's face with the butt of his gun. You know, all of that. Our, our houses were raided regularly. Um, the things that the soldiers would say to you on the way. Imagine we were young kids going to school and these British soldiers would talk, would say, oh, you know, I fucked your sister last night or Jeez. your mother gave me a blowjob last night. You know, like just trying to rile you, you know. Yeah. And these are like, we were little kids. We were like 11 and 12 and you had to learn to, you know, have a, have a shield against that stuff. So, and then like the terror of when the hunger strikes happened, it did feel like the world was ending. There were women, hundreds of women, saying rosaries on the street. And any time a hunger striker died, you had to get up, get your bin lid and go out and bang the bin lids on the ground all night long as a mark of respect that, that say, Bobby Sands had died or somebody. So it did seem like some sort of surreal film, except it was real. And we were walking around in it and you had to mind yourself. Otherwise, you'd get a rubber bullet in the face, you'd lose your eye, you'd lose a limb. You know, any of those kind of things. So it was it was quite literally living in a war zone. And the thing is, if you don't have two childhoods, then you don't know uh, that that's not normal. Because yeah. even on TV, you see conflict and you think, oh, God, maybe that's what the rest of the world is like. But clearly it wasn't, you know, having to queue up to go into the town, our side of the town. We had turnstiles like a, it was like a Jewish ghetto. I remember Mary McAleese compared it to that and she got a lot of flack. I would absolutely um, agree with her. So there was like turnstiles in a wall. Uh, yeah, a wall and a yeah. big turnstile and a fence of railings. And the men queued on one side, usually the women on the other, regardless of how awful the weather was. And there'd be queues of hundreds of people. And finally, I'd get up to the top of the line and he'd say, what's your name? Where are you going? When are you coming back? And and only when they all those information that was all cleared, you went through the turnstile and into the rest of the city like anybody else. Now, we were the only side of the city that that happened to. There weren't any turnstiles in any other part of the, the town, you know. But it was it was your cards were marked. You know, if you were a Catholic from that area, you were lesser than everybody else in that city and, and you were treated so. How does a young child even process that? Mm. Is it just because it was the norm and you didn't know anything else? Was that how you coped with it? Or did you ever sit and talk to people at school about it? Or did your teachers talk to you about it? Like, how on earth did you handle all of that that was happening? I think you just take it day by day because certainly every every other day something absolutely horrific would happen and or there'd be an anniversary of something that had happened the year before or five years before. So there wasn't a great deal. You know, I don't think boys are are really built in that way that certainly they might talk all day about football or girls or, or something. So I, here's me, a little gay boy, trying to find a way to emerge out of that mess. Also the, the Catholic, you know, the spectre of the Catholic Church also with, a, on you know, no uncertain language where they would tell you that, you know, that queerness and all that, people you were going to hell. I, I mean, you couldn't even be straight up there, never mind gay. Did you hear that in church when you oh, were yeah. growing up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It was talked about. It was it must have been in the news or something. And it was very definitely, they they were, they were in charge. They had the moral majority, uh, uh, laughingly, you know. And um, gay people were basically going to hell. So you did have some awareness of homosexuality yeah, when oh, you yes, were growing up? Definitely. Yeah. From what age about? I remember... All I do remember is there was a programme on TV called The Man from Atlantis, Patrick Duffy. You're probably too young to remember him. He was Bobby in Dallas. Okay, yeah. So he played this guy uh, who actually turns out that he, called Man from Atlantis, and he was actually aquatic. He needed to live under the water. Um, but he was hairy, you know, quite buff, really good looking. And I remember being a little kid and thinking, oh my God, that man is gorgeous, right? But obviously keeping that to myself, I'm wondering what all these electrical 
you know, impulses were happening all over my body. What was all that about, you know? So even from the get go, I always really liked kind of classically handsome men, hairy men, versions of, I suppose, an accepted def definition of masculinity. Because as we know, it comes in all forms and mm -hmm. it's not one way to be gay or anything. But my certainly uh, early take on all of that was as masculine as possible. I Another one was um, Bob Hoskins from Pennies from Heaven, if you've ever seen that. I've, oh, I know Bob and he, Hoskins. And he, yeah. he, you know, obviously he turned into a little old man and then he died, of course. But yeah. back in those days, he was a buff, muscular, you know, balding-headed alpha male, I suppose. Yeah. And I was quite turned on by that notion. Now, I'm not quite sure why I was, but I certainly wanted to be, be sided as much as possible. And so what age were you around at that time? I'd say seven or eight. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I had crushes on other boys at school. Um, that I, I mean, real proper crushes. Like was that heart. more in secondary school or? No, a, a little bit in primary school okay. and then in secondary school. Um, I started, I had a, a you know, testosterone pretty early on, mm. I think. It was growing, you know. And then the confusion of going through puberty and working all that out and kissing some girls and loving the company of girls. And, and then that became great confusion for me because I really loved hanging out with girls. I loved their games. I loved their bitchiness. I loved their stories. Um, mm. All of that. And boys just weren't that much crack, really. It was all about fighting and football. And it's like, it's kind of dull, you know. And so I, I spent naturally most of my time so much so that I was actually discouraged from spending so much time with them by by my family because it was a you know the the ridiculousness that you know the, the worst thing is a boy could do is you know become a girl mm. or become too girly so as I always say my parents had you know five boys and one girl but they had four boys and one girly boy and then my sister you know yeah so yeah it, it's just I just I sought them out. You know, women were funny to me. They were interesting. So your family were a little conscious of the fact that you were hanging out with oh, lots yeah. of girls. And was that a, was was that getting, a problem for them? I or? was getting beaten up. I was bringing shame on the family. I was too girly. Clearly, they would refer to me at school as a filthy queer and all of that stuff. And to, so much so that my brothers actually actively said to me, do not speak to us in school because we went to the same school. Oh, like, don't even think about it. And if anybody asks if you're my brother, say no, you're you're not related to us. They were deeply ashamed of me, and I, and I, part of me is an adult, and I gets that. I mean, there's cruelty in that, of course. Mm -hmm. Would have been nice to have had some support, but um, nobody was taught about support in those days. Yeah. And so then, yeah, I I very quickly was on the outside of everything, even then, like sports. I never played sports. I never, until music, suddenly appeared in the form of uh, the music teacher wanting to put a choir together for perhaps. Uh, a little uh, play, a little performance, a little musical. And I put my own name down on the list kind yeah. of terrifiedly. And that started off a musical journey with me there. So you were very much aware of homosexuality and yeah. the messaging was yeah. it's it was really negative. It was, well, there the, it was any really positive, shameful. Really shameful. Something and, you did your very best to hide. And that and was coming from everyone around everyone you, around from your me. peers, your family. I remember our next door neighbour became a priest and it was like he discovered the cure for cancer. I mean, he was treated like the biggest celebrity imaginable. Yeah, and then like the that back then. And then the it? next breath, my parents are saying, you should become a priest. And actually, I did consider it. And I went along and met with the priests, a couple of us, you know, they were, they were coming around to recruit us, actually. And um, I remember just the, the priest in question had the most disgusting teeth and breath you, you ever saw in your life. And I remember just thinking... Oh, no, I, I just couldn't be around somebody like that. And then he started getting really creepy and talking about the pleasures of the flesh and all of that business. And you're just like, hang on a minute. Is this allowed? This is like four so or five. This of is us. at home in your house. No, this is at school oh, in, in okay. a spare it's, it's a school room. And he starts talking to us about the f pleasures of the flesh and all of this stuff. It's like, we're, first of all, we're in the grip of puberty. So we don't know mm. what we're at. 
it couldn't have been more inappropriate. And then they get you when you're pretty weak, I suppose, because I did say to him, oh, no, I do believe in God and I want to teach the word of God and everything. And I was also half thinking, me being me, it'll get me out of the false road. I'll get a really good education somewhere and then I can leave and go off into the world having been educated. That was my plan. But I just got really put off by the creepiness of the of the priest and I I decided not to do it. And you guys were like 13, 14. Yeah, he was preying well, on young boys at yeah. the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really disturbing. It's very it? disturbing to be left alone like that. There yeah. was no supervision. Like, as you said, though, they were royalty back then. Oh, my they? God. It was like you were the luckiest boy in the world if they singled you out. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you think that your parents and your family did have some sort of an inkling that you were gay? Well, they knew very well that I wasn't like the other boys. And okay. I, I, unfortunately... Um, one of the things I'm going to tell you is very language is very important and I must have used a lot of girly language like dear or like I hung out mm. with my aunts and my sister and my mate all my mates were girls and all of that so I sort of must have adopted loads of their phrases so my, my father and mother had a massive fight about it and my father uh, my mother basically was instructed that every time I used a word like that she was to beat me on the mouth right so for the first week or two I ended up with a very bloody mouth because I just oh, habitually, you know, used those words because that I was understood so then. It was nature. It was in my nature. But yeah. no, that it had to be beaten out of me, I'm afraid. So that happened over a, a few weeks. And then you just get clever and stop saying it. And, and that, in fact, I stopped speaking at all for a while, for about six months, and but was secretly singing, secretly doing this, that and the other. And plot, plotting away, thinking, how do I get away from this? How do I get away from these people? Mm. And uh, yeah, so my fantasy was that um, I would be sitting on the front steps of my parents wee house and a car a lovely car would come up the street and out of that car would come my real parents and they'd say we're so sorry it took so long to find you and the beautiful big blanket they'd put me in the blanket put me in the back seat and we'd drive off to this mm. new family my new real family now that's as far as the fantasy got but it was one thing that would calm me down if I was had been beaten or I was worried about something I would sit on those steps and go ah oh, don't worry one day one day so that fantasy happen. world was your coping mechanism. 200%. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of gay people during their development years, they really do lose themselves in yeah. like alternative realities and alternative worlds like comic books or movies yes. or show business yeah. as a way of coping, don't they? I would say so. And and it is a funny thing to basically then wind up on stage. Like what, what you know, what prompts you to stand up higher than everybody mm. else and, and say, hello, everybody, look at me, if it's not to be loved. Yeah. I mean, if you're not being loved in an ordinary sense at home or in a bunch of people, then you, you normally, generally speaking, don't take to the stage. You don't have to get up a few steps and go, does everybody see me? You know, it's like it is like a psychological cry for help and for love, for sure. To begin a with. lot of performers. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I've read that before that mm. a lot of performers are really thin skinned, really. Well, George Michael used to say, I remember he said it, and it confused me for a moment. He said, you know, it's not what you have that makes you a star. It's, it's what you haven't got. Right. And I'm thinking, well, I, I get the theory of that. But the more you think about it, and, and also given that he passed away so sadly, yeah. you just think, well, that's exactly what he must have felt like. It's like he had nothing. And yet he had everything. But it actually meant nothing. Yeah, I think he sang about that in that song, Star People. Yeah, the right. lyrics to it about what motivates people to become I, famous. Yeah. And I don't count myself among you. That's one of the lines yeah. from that song. Yeah. So were you, um, going back, were you subjected to quite a bit of homophobic bullying yeah. in oh, school yeah. as well? Oh, yeah. I was beaten up very badly. Mm. I had my head slammed into the door a few times in the corridors. I blocked out. I was beaten up very badly by um, other pupils. Um, 
and then unfortunately beaten up very badly by one of my siblings a bit later on and we've never spoken since that was over 20 years ago um so yeah i don't do well with violence you know physical violence um because it tells me that somebody has run out of you know their brain they've run out of being able to be a, a human being and say look here's what's upsetting me about you and why do you do that why do you walk that way why do you talk that way and then you at least cause conversation and Hopefully, the most important thing is, is that these days, what young people clearly see is that there's not one way to be gay, not one way to be straight. And so, so you had no one to turn to at all during this time? No. There was nobody? No. And there was no information? It's not like today you can go on the internet? On the internet, or... God, there was nothing. Even that, even if something slightly racy, like I remember Quentin Crisp, you know, came on the TV um, one night and it was, I got to watch about half of it before it got switched off because it was filthy, according to, you know, the family. Um, and then I met him and became friendly with him later oh, okay. in later years, you know, and I had a great, great conversations with him about Northern Ireland and being gay at that time. He, he'd actually come over and done some lectures in the 70s. I mean, could you imagine someone like Quentin yeah. uh, in Queen's University? So he was a riot to, to talk to and sit, sit and have lunch with in America. But yeah, it, it, there was uh, very few information to be had uh, on the ground you know the occasional as we call them nudie magazines which were straight but you might see a bit of a naked man in them maybe and, and just the inability for people to speak openly uh, you know about how they felt and oh. and that goes for straight people you could not have a sexuality of any kind in, in terms of the catholic umbrella you know it, you basically had as many children as your body allowed you to and that's that's the end of that you only had sex to have children and so on and so forth and yeah so we grew up in a very very tense uh, time, so I think a lot, and it's no wonder I'm not a great sleeper. I I never really learned to sleep properly in those early days, and I think it does affect you when you're older. How else do you think it's affected you long term, your childhood and your development years? Well, you know, it made me very very skeptical about uh, relationships, because I came up through London in the eighties when it was HIV fantastic you know HIV had just arrived it was absolutely a killer you didn't survive it I knew lots of people who died from it very quickly so I, I was absolutely terrified of getting so I was celibate myself for about four years I would say in my early 20s and slowly but surely when things began to calm down I started to have sex and fun with other men and and as much as I enjoyed that I never really had a boyfriend I still don't have a boyfriend it's just something that doesn't seem to fit yet what I'm doing I'm always away I'm always doing things but you know they say if you meet the right person you make the room for them of course you do but I think that gets harder as you get older like I'm 53 now I happen to fancy men around my own age I don't mm. fancy young 20 year olds or young 30 year olds even they've got to be late 40s into their middle 50s for me to be interested and so if you know life goes how it should go a man would have his shit together at that age mm. he knows where he's living whereas Friends are, you know, what his job is, all but of those strong kind of sense of self. Yes. So, so, and I'm very attracted to that. And regardless of what he does for a living, as long as he's able to go Dutch on a few dinners, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and all of that and, and knows how to be a decent human being, then, yeah. And so you mentioned there about moving to London. Yeah. So it was the main motivations, was it professional and personal? Oh, music. Absolutely. It was yeah. the closest one. Uh, historically, as you know, Irish people have moved to London and prospered. Yeah. In whatever field. Did you in. live in the real Irish areas when you went over? Sort of. I, I mean, to begin with, we I moved into a squat in Tottenham, oh. um, two doors down from a group called the Adventures, who were you know neighbours of ours at home, and they were the actually the conduit for me meeting Simon Fuller, mm -hmm. who then went on to manage me for thirteen years, and he discovered the Spice Girls, and, yes, and Atlantics and all of that S Club Seven, all those mm -hmm. things, um, and so I. 
yes, I suddenly, even though it was a four-year journey from nothing to a record deal and all kinds of struggles, homelessness and great hunger and all kinds of things, uh, I suddenly ended up with my own flat in Highgate in London at 24. Oh, Highgate's lovely. Yeah, Highgate's gorgeous. I had that flat for a long time. And then that was the start of my bizarre, you know, journey in in, in this music industry, all the highs and the lows and the, yeah, getting up high again. So when you moved to London then, so mm. you didn't really go, did you go out on the gay scene or was there just a really, really fearful atmosphere? It was a fearful atmosphere. Men tended to meet each other on the phone uh, on Hampstead Heath oh, near course, me. Yeah. Um, there were, of course, gay clubs like Heaven. I used to sing in Heaven briefly mm. in the Star Bar. So that's where I first would have seen famous gay people. Yeah. You know, like Boy George or... or did you see Freddie Mercury then? I didn't see him there, but I did see him at the Brit Awards one night. And that was the last, I think, five months later he died. Um, I saw all kinds of, like, Mark Almond and, you know, even Tom Jones even was downstairs in one part of it. And, but that wasn't necessarily a gay night. It was just a kind of, a, or some, somebody famous is in, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, lots of those kind of people. Marilyn, I was in, in, in a choir with Marilyn and those people. Um, so yeah, it, it was the time when Boy George was taking heroin. So he was okay. super, super thin and not very with it. And thankfully he's come right out of all of that and still making great music. Um, so yeah, it was it, a really experimental time. I did see Lee Bowery in the street one day. Oh, the performance artist yeah, guy. I saw yeah. him, big, a giant of a man covered in, you know, plastic bags and ridiculous makeup and everything late one night. I saw Francis Bacon once in the street. Oh, the artist. Yeah. yeah. I, just going into a pub. I remember thinking, oh, look at that man's you know, head. Look, it was like a dented bucket, you know. Mm. And I, I realised in a second it was him. Um, I loved London for that reason. You could mm. see all kinds of history and, you know, presence in that city if you just stayed still long enough. And did some of your close friends, did they have AIDS as also? Yeah, yeah. I, I knew very a couple of men very closely, one of which who died very quickly. And one of which his partner's still alive to this day. And, and somehow survived it. I, I lived in America briefly. I went traveling around America and I befriended a lovely chef. Um, we'd had a little fling and then we decided just to be friends. And he once a week used to go to an AIDS center, a Buddhist place and feed these, you know, back in the day, these little sparrows of men. They'd waste away to nothing. Mm -hmm. And all of those people died. And even poor Esteban was his name, the chef. He uh, w unfortunately was raped by a man uh, who told him he was giving him HIV. Uh, because they were it was a drug thing, and they he gave him HIV, and he him and his brother had it actually, and then he he killed himself in a in a car crash thing a couple of years later. So that was in San Francisco. So I, I did know quite a few people who then died from it, and then as we know, it started to rectify itself, and people started surviving it. There must have been just so many harrowing stories from yeah. that time, isn't oh, it? Yeah. I just can't imagine what it must have been like to have lived through it. Yes, young people just just dead you know mm. in the, supposedly in the the prime of their lives and, and, and then we have people like Holly Johnson who has been HIV all mm. these years oh, yeah. and he's Frankie alive Frankie goes to Hollywood yeah. guy yeah. and even Panty you know she's been HIV for a long time and she's my god she's surviving it mm. and, and doing clubs and becoming fabulous every time we see her so you know there are great thank goodness there are great good stories about it yeah. but aside from the AIDS crisis and what was the rest of the gay scene like in London well, was it quite shrouded in a lot of secrecy still secrecy still there was again a lot of themes like the leather theme or yeah. the bear theme was emerging um, which... did you go out more in Earl's Court then or was it in Soho Soho yeah but then you know sex lines the internet hadn't I mean back in the day you'd have to ring a number leave a message describing yourself quickly and then that would go into the system. And then some you get, you have a message from Tom, North London, 
hi, I'm Tom, I'm North London, I've got an eight-inch dick, and uh, right. I, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so you could click if you like that message or click to send him away. And that's what and went on all night. It was expensive, of course. It was, it a, it was a sex line. Yeah. So sometimes if you get a few drinks on you, you'd be on it for fucking hours. So that was a grinder for the 80s. Grindy, real acoustic grinders. God, people nowadays don't realise how easy they I have know. it. But I think that's the problem. Now. Because things are too easy, people are dropping people like what they're More fickle. More fickle, more like people having had sex with loads of people. Mm. And, and, very, and, not, and very open about it and all of that. And that's fine. Because, you know, I do like the fact that we are so much more visible now. I really love that. Um, but it is funny that there's that there's the most disturbing thing for me at the moment is this is is the language that has crept into into uh, Dublin gay life, which is this idea of daddy. Oh, OK, right. How do you feel about that? Well, I suppose I'm nearly one myself now. I've got a grey beard. Yeah, yeah. So I'm heading in that direction. Head, yes, yes. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously firmly in that category. But I'm not in the sense that uh, I can't understand why anybody would want to call somebody daddy when they were having sex with them. Okay. <laughs> For obvious reasons. Right. Because, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I would never call a priest father, for example, because mm. he's not my father. Mm. Um, the, and in fact, I, obviously, I have a very, I'd had a very difficult relationship with my own father. So it wasn't even on a friendly term, da or daddy or, okay. f- you know, dad is too English, I suppose. But for me, given that we did so much work uh, on h- helping people understand that being gay was not about pedophilia, was not about oh. any of that stuff. We then have these theme nights called daddy. Okay. There's a cafe near me called daddy. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, and that's say, quite, um, I think that's, yeah, y- y- your interpretation of it is quite literal though, isn't it? Ooh. Whereas, is it some people intend or they the connotations for them is that there's somebody who's more powerful or stronger than them? Mm-hmm. Is that what they mean? Well, I suppose I'm asking the question because yeah. at the end of the day, when you're in a sexual situation and instead of using their name okay. or love or whatever, you're actually calling them daddy. Yeah. And he's calling you son. Right. And you're both having sex with each other. Oh, I didn't know about the son thing. Yeah, that's a bit strange. Actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, yeah. do daddies have sex with each other? I don't. I then it's do. not a daddy situation, then, is it? No, I didn't. I think don't so. know. I should know. <laughs> I have no, to I'm look into it this. I'm, I'm honestly, <laughs> as a 53 year old gay fellow who doesn't doesn't go on the scene very often, yeah. when I do, I see things like that, and I think, really, I also have to look at then, you know, the, the anti woman aspect of all of that. Apparently, we had a club last year called Mother. And and that was all going on, but I, I see often misogyny going on in these things, and it's very very it's casual misogyny, but it's there nonetheless. Hasn't there's no women allowed into certain no women gay allowed clubs in, or... or or people speaking negatively about lesbians, okay. you know, within the gay community. You know, I often would hear people uh, that I know, men of gay men of a certain age, going, "I fucking hate the lesbians." I'm like, "Well, why they're aggressive?" And I I'm like, "Well, it sounds like they're being aggressive because you're not being very nice to them. Like maybe try and be nice to them." Yeah. It's very weird when there's an internal homophobia in in a homosexual world. Yeah, I think there's some of that there from the lesbian community towards mm. gay men. I, so mm. I've heard some of the lesbian mm. women I've known mm. have told me that as well. Yeah. yeah. Weird, isn't it? It's weird that there aren't more, yeah, I suppose that there aren't more gay guys with lesbian friends and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. When you think about it, it does seem exactly. to be quite separate. It does. It? it does. It really does. It's, um, are you into daddies? I, I don't know. That's a good question, yeah. actually. Yeah. What's your type uh, generally? Someone asked me that the other day. Whoever you sync with, whoever you mesh with, I guess. But you don't have a physical type? Well, yeah, but I mean, long term. I mean, oh, okay. For initially, 
initially uh, like have a physical i have a physical type but i mean for anything long term i mean you can't build a relationship on the the the, no. phys- the physique aspect of no, it no you'd be so, not wise to do that no i think because uh yeah because uh, it's because we all change as we get older yeah absolutely and it doesn't matter if someone's got a really great six pack and great abs i mean if you can't stand each other long term it's you know you're going to forget about it aren't that's you that's right yeah Certainly, it's all fun and games in the beginning. Mm. But as you say, if you're going somewhere with this relationship, it's the last thing you should be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it's great probably for an initial attraction. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. but probably long term, Mm. maybe not so much. Yeah. Yes, I would like to think so, because the personality and the caringness of somebody and their, you know, their ability to second guess you, Mm. which means they've really thought about you. I find that very sexy. The sexiest organ I'm interested in is a man's mind and his Mm. heart and... All of that stuff, I would find that very sexy. That would be really attractive if you do have that kind of deep kind of spiritual connection. Yeah. 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 You mentioned there about Simon Fuller as well. Yeah. And that during the 90s, you were signed to a 19, major, yeah. to RCA. I was, it? RCA, BMG, yeah. So you were really in the thick of the music industry back then in Britain. I was. And so did you experience any homophobia then? Was your sexuality, was yeah. that issue ever raised? Well, or was coming out, was that even a possibility back then? Or I mean, the thing is, I wasn't really fully cooked myself. So I was certainly playfully identifying as bi if I was really pushed. Because that was my experience. I was snog and the odd girl. I'd had a wee oh, bit of were. sex. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, but much more interested in men, for sure. So I think I really, I, I did realize that, you know, that bi was a, you know, it's like taking the M50 around being gay. You know, it's like you'll stay on the outer lane for a while, but mm. at some point you have to come into the city. And uh, I got more and more confidence about that. So very quietly and colloquially, the people who needed to know knew I was gay. But because I never had a boyfriend... It never came up. It never, and I, I, if I'd be a plus one to a wedding, or even now, you know, I'll bring a friend, I'll bring a girlfriend, I'll bring a, a buddy who's straight, maybe and it's not, but not, and they're not my date. But these days, of course, people are so much more relaxed about that stuff. It doesn't really matter. Um, I think people would faint if I showed up with an actual date. Hmm. I've only ever done it a couple of times, and it didn't really go that well, you know. So it's like. But back then, during the 90s, there was yeah. no meetings about it. You weren't yeah, told no, the, by any there were. record executive, you have to keep this quiet. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll tell you a situation, um, a couple of things that happened. I signed to a label called Curb Records, and I sang You Raise Me Up with them. And there was a group called Sela, S-E-L-A-H, who wanted to do it as a duet. for, for a, And they were a super religious Christian band in Nashville. And then we gave them the track, blah, blah, blah. I heard nothing. To cut a long story short, we finally got an email from them saying, because of Brian's lifestyle choice, we feel we cannot work with them and, and sing with him. And oh, so, these were an American label, was yeah, it? Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and so we were re- getting ready to sue them. Uh, but it was actually legal, what they said, in the, in the place where they were from. Oh. So that was not that long ago. That was 10 years ago. So what was their defense? Religious freedom or? Their defense was that they didn't believe in homosexuality. Okay. That it was a you know an abomination. It's not something they could because uh, they, they didn't were... know until I until they heard the record. So and this was only about ten years ago yeah, or yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. God, that's unbelievable, I isn't know. it? And they were is that a record label in the deep south or? It's in Nashville. Okay. Yeah. yeah and and the group themselves were major Christians, and that was what their manager sent us back. We feel we cannot uh, work with you because of your lifestyle choice. That lovely phrase. God, that's really shocking to hear. It isn't is, isn't it? At this day and age, it's and wild. Did you experience any other homophobia was in the music industry yeah, from I mean, well, producers you know, or? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There, are, there. Are, I, I remember I was working with Simon Climey, you know, from Climey Fisher. I've heard that name, the producer and, guy. Yeah, and 
another a really big songwriter from Nashville and um, we'd written a song together and, and we were playing around the piano playing some Cole Porter and I said to him God it's a shame what happened to that poor man think you know because his legs had finally given in he got very unwell and he goes yes yes he was he, he was very sick and I went yeah and he goes you know with his homosexuality oh. and I said no I, I didn't mean that you could see Simon Clem he was like oh Jesus Christ I was going well, what, what do you mean that's not a sickness oh well yes it is you know, like, like he was totally serious and um we we just ended the session, and I was like, I, I've got to get out of here. Was that Sorry. another American? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day, and then just casual homophobia. You'd overhear people call people faggots all the time mm. if, before they knew I was gay. And again, they, you know, they, Simon Fuller and that crew would say to me, "Look, if I, I I came out here in Ireland because there were tabloids chasing it, they were threatening to expose some ridiculous story." Oh, in Ireland, in Ireland, mm. uh, and in Northern Ireland, in, yeah. the, in that part of the world too. So I finally just decided, look. I, I played with it for a long time and then I did come out officially. So when did you come out uh, officially like in public? I guess in the 90s. Okay. Middle, around a better man time when I was at my most visible, I suppose. Um, I never pretended to have a girlfriend. I never brought a girl mm. to anything. And um, I never brought a boy to anything either. I was so bloody busy. I hadn't met anybody I fancied. Um, and I did sort of date the odd person secretly. But I think the downside to using apps for dating and all and it gets to the sex very quickly. And, you know, we don't... And it's over. And it's kind of over. It hasn't, hasn't started even before it's begun. So I think that I'm very reluctant to use apps for any other reason other than sex or, you know, just nosiness, inquisitiveness and see what's going on. But what I see recently, a lot of the daddy language, a lot of the son language, a lot of harnesses. Okay. Uh, a lot of leather fetish. Even in Dublin? Especially in Dublin. Oh, okay. Um, I thought that was more a London thing. No, it's a no. really big here, yeah. it seems. So let's go back a bit to your coming out. So that was in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, I was getting more and more well-known and, and then people were saying, well, who's your girlfriend? Don't have a girlfriend. Oh. And because I wouldn't speak about which actress I fancied or this song's obviously about a girl or something, you know, um, they just, I suppose because they'd never had an artist like me before to go, well, I hear he's definitely bi, I hear he's definitely gay. And they were just coming after me. The and whole so time. was it pressure from the tabloid media that forced yeah, you to come out? A little bit, a little bit, yeah. Because they started calling up my parents, and then uh, in 1999, there was that ridiculous rumor that I had been found in bed with Ronan Keating, mm. and that took my God. I mean, that still goes on now, even. So they, I suppose, people were thinking, well, they, well, he's definitely gay, but they're, they're, they were more obviously interested in trying to out Ronan, who presented himself as a straight man with a wife and a child and then supposedly being found in bed with me. Number one, as I always said, he would never be my type, ever. And and it, it just shows you what can get, get legs if enough people talk about it. Extraordinary. And how did you feel around that time? Were you relieved to have come out, or did you feel quite angry? Did you feel that you had been pushed? Uh, well, both both things. I mean, it was a relief on some level. Um, and then on other levels, you just think, yeah, but I mean, already you're using it as... As a, well, what does he do in bed? Not like, well, what does he write about creatively or blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, you, you get reduced to sexuality rather than humanity. And so, especially back then. Especially back then. And we did a couple of TV shows together. We had a duet together out called These Days. And so it, it just added fuel to the fire, basically. People would shout homewrecker at me in the street at, at the airport. Uh, all of that, you know. Rip it really it. built to that oh, level. Oh, yeah, that... it certainly did. God. It certainly did. People talked about it on the news. Uh, they printed a photograph of me and and him 
and they blacked out my face like I was some kind of murderer or, or pedo or something. And sit, and they, I never forget it. It was uh, smoke without fire, as in, you know, a yeah. celebrity has been caught in bed. The, the details were just extraordinary. And to this day, when people get pissed and I'm out, they'll go, come on, like it's years ago. You did sleep with him, didn't you? And I'm like, no, definitely not. Not my type. And and so it's amazing what happened. So I then moved to America after that, and yeah. and did Broadway for a year with Riverdance and and so on. You know, so yeah, it was um, I, as much as I loved, I was living here for a bit, but I also really loved the idea of getting away to America yeah. too, for a whole year. Did you see that as a real example of homophobia? The fact that yeah. that story, uh, that rumor gathered uh, had gathered legs and built legs in the way that it did, and it it's reached incredible. the point it did. Yeah, it's incredible. I remember uh, my friend. Catherine Lynch, the comedian, she was... Oh, she's so funny. I recent, she was recently walking down the street and my name came up somehow in the conversation behind these two women and Ronan. And she, I think they were talking about my cancer. And, oh, God, you know, I hope he's all right. And she goes, oh, yeah, what, what's he been doing? She, oh, I don't know. Yeah. But do you remember that time he was caught in bed with Ronan yeah. Keating? This is last year. This conversation took place. So that story's 20 years old. And it's still being talked about like it's fact. Mm. So it's kind of mad. You just think, is that... What all people have to talk about, isn't it weird? Mm. I mean, I'm listen. I'm not a, above a bit of gossip. I love a bit of juicy gossip about somebody, but um, it's just, just got it out of hand completely. It just got out of hand. Yeah, and you're just there hanging out with your friend, with your my friend. friend, yeah, and his wife. Mm. Like, and they would sometimes cut her out of the picture, and put these pictures just up of me and him, and his wife was right beside us. Mm. Oh, it was very strange because again, they contacted family and friends, and I had a, a very difficult relationship with my family. We were estranged and all of that. And so they were ringing up and saying, your, bro your, bro your boy has been caught in bed with another man. Mm. What, do you, what do you think about that? I didn't think that the tabloid media in Ireland would be that vicious. I thought it was more of a British thing. No, we we've, that we, really I goes on we've over here as we've well. learned that from the Brits, I think. Yeah, their tactics. And how were you with your family at that time? Had you come out to them? Did they yeah. know you were gay? Yeah, I, I'd come out to them a couple of years before. But again... It was very much a kind of, a, okay, you know, let's just keep all that quiet. Yeah. So that was when you'd moved to London. Yeah. You came out to them then. Yeah. I came home and came out to my dad first and then my mother and then let, went back to London. And apparently all, you know, the shit hit the fan then. Because as we were just saying earlier, you know, when you are gay young man in London, clearly you were going to get AIDS and die. Mm. That's what, or you'd live a long, lonely, horrible, fruitless life, you know. And all of that. So that's where their dictionary was in terms of, of how homosexual people existed or didn't exist. And look, I can understand why they see us like that or see, have seen us like that, because we had to invent a whole new secret life for ourselves. You know, I, I stopped going home for Christmas. I, you know, I, I disengaged from the family very, very early on because there's only so many times you can hear, well, have you, have you met a girl? Have you met a girl? No, no, I'm probably going to be dating a man. No, no, no. You'll meet a girl. It'll be all right. No, no. So they were really weren't accepting of it? I don't think so. I don't think, how could they? How could they? You know, right. it was so alien to them. And then slowly but surely, I spent less and less time communicating with them and become really outside of that family mm. and then I started getting well known and making records and then that had its own complications and then like I say I've just blossomed as I've gotten away from the family I've been estranged from them now over 20 years I saw my parents actually three three years ago mm. uh, for the first time in 14 years and they, they well I spoke about this on TV she has profound dementia and he's not your far, mother has and oh. he's not far behind so they just hadn't a clue who I was at all not a clue and I sat with them talked to them for five or ten minutes and they were asking me things like are you are you married 
Mm. Are you married? And I was like, no, no, I'm not married. Even though I want to say, well, I could be married now that the law is in place. Yeah. And they they were like, so you live in Dublin. They never mentioned my cancer, not once. Mm. Why would they? And my dad didn't say two words to me, really. He wouldn't look at me. And eventually it was time for them to leave and go back and get medication. And, you know, it was the most bizarre 45 minutes I so ever spent. So would you say you reconciled or... No, no. They, she, she didn't know who I was. She said oh. to Stuart in the car, who was that fellow with the lovely dark hair? And Stuart would say, well, that's Brian. And who's he? Like, not not even a, yeah. a glimpse. And, and honestly, I don't think it wasn't in my mind that it was a reconciliation. It was just a, a re-meeting to see how that would go yeah. and to see if there was any flicker of humanity of any kind, kindness or, you know, because I, I had lots of reasons not to go and meet them. But my biggest reason, which is always the case these days, is that never mind what's right or what's wrong. What's the kindest thing to do here? And I always try and opt for that. What is the kindest thing I could do? Even though these people treated me abominably. Yeah. Let's put that to one side. And what can I bring to this situation in a kind? Yeah. So that's what I did. I, I came home. I was prepared to bring them out to dinner or something, but we couldn't do any of that. Mm. And they had to go back home. And now, now they're both in a home. They've left their house and they're both in a home. And, you know... They're in the departure lounge, you know. So do you think one of the main reasons for that estrangement was mm. you being gay? I think it was a, a, certainly a strong strand of that. I was also pretty bright kid, um, asked a lot of questions, challenged everybody, challenged why my mother had to do all these jobs and clean up after us and none of the boys would do the dishes. And, you know, I was a little feminist, really, mm. amongst uh, that. There's a wonderful uh, film. I think it's called Gods and Monsters. And... Uh, the lead character talks about when he was a young kid and he says, um, I feel like I was a, a gazelle born into a family of lions. Oh, yes. About to be devoured at mm. any turn. And I, I nearly fell off my seat when he said that line. It just hit the nail on the head. I just thought, that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. So you were the real quintessential black sheep. Pink sheep. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Must be incredibly lonely and isolated. You know, it was. And when I look back on it now, I, 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 the loneliest place you can be is in a crowded house full of people who won't who don't want to talk to you, mm. you know, and that's just simply it, um, without any exaggeration. So yeah, it, I grew up in a very unsafe house, in a very unsafe city, yeah. in a very unsafe country. So um, there was nowhere really where you could go. Oh, thank God, I'm home, or you know, blah blah blah. There so, was no safe. There was no, no safe space at no, all. So or you falling get used place. to living. Uh, dropping into yourself a lot or, or you know, your spidey senses have to be open all the time because there's going to be a kick or a punch coming at some point during the day just for you being a breathing wrong or walking wrong or moving your hair wrong or you know, something. So yes, it was a very tense time. No wonder I couldn't sleep. Yeah. And do you think now um, you've processed that as much as you can? Yeah. Do you think, have you been to counselling or therapy to I, talk I did, about those experiences? I did a lot of therapy. I yeah, did, uh, I did to, a lot you? in England. I did about seven years in England Yeah, and had closure. Then I did, did about three years here in Dublin. Um, and then recently, after post-cancer operation and everything, I got some therapy up the road from my house in Ark. And it's actually something I'm thinking of returning to in a more professional way and see if I can somehow keep being a singer and doing all that, but become a kind of a therapist mm. that would speak to maybe other well-known people or, or 
anybody who's ever been through cancer like I have and losing their rectum and losing and how that affects your life and going forward and so on. So Is Donald Breslin doing something like that at Well, the he's moment? been doing mild mindfulness for a okay. long time. We did The Voice of Ireland together. Oh, yes. And he, um, he had a lot of, he then revealed he had a lot of um, anxiety that was really crippling him. But he's gone back to, cons- to school now uh, to college and he is graduated I think he's been at it for a good few years yeah. and that's what he does now he he talks about mindfulness I did my first motivational speech a few weeks ago and it was about resilience I talked about that about the Falls Road yeah. and being gay You're definitely and qualified to talk about uh, yeah, that I certainly am it turns out and it turns out I can do it very well so I'm going to do another one in Kerry in a few weeks and then a, a concert in the evening but it's a two hour workshop about resilience yeah. and all of that God, I don't know what to say. You've just had such a tough time of it, haven't you? Yeah, but a lot of people have had a tougher one. I mean, every time I walk past somebody in the street there with, you know, half a leg and no nowhere to live, you think, well, I'm not there. Yeah. That's tougher. Got you, you, you're able to keep perspective on it all. Definitely, because yeah. it, it, perspective is everywhere. Like even in the, in the chemo ward, I'd be sitting, you know, with six or eight other people. And some woman has just commuted from Donegal with three fucking kids and can't afford the parking and can't afford to stay anywhere that night. So she's drive right back after an exhausting chemo. Yeah. She's got to drive right back all her he does to Cork. They've got to make dinner for their kids. They're trying to keep their kids' lives normal, even though they're really suffering physically. And I really suffered towards the end of chemo. Uh, month five, month six were really the hardest because the, it's cumulative and I was very, very, very exhausted, profoundly exhausted all the time. But somehow I managed to do some vocals, write some songs, made that record recovery and it just seems to, to be what I do, I need to do. The gigs at the moment have been incredible because cancer has become a real strand of it where I talk to people about it in the audience. They ask me questions. Yeah, there's so they, many people dealing with or who've been affected yeah, by it in their yeah, lives. It, yeah, it, Absolutely. But your music and singing, it's really been your saving grace throughout your life, hasn't it? No question about it. No question. I mean, I could have been caught up in whole kinds of things when I was a, a young kid. Um, I was, you know, a hair's breadth away from being shot dead many times. Um, but somehow the music did it for me. And the moment I started to sing and other people would be like, didn't expect to hear that from you. Right. And it, you, you do gather confidence eventually. And then when you learn how to write songs and talk about you know, talk about your own feelings, writing wrongs, writing songs, yeah. all those things. Um, then that becomes the greatest gift of all, where you can put something that's greatly troubling and sad into a song. Sometimes it's easier to sing that song than to speak it out loud, say. Yeah. So that's what really kept you going growing up, wasn't it, as well? It would seem. The, yeah. the music. Through other artists first who I could relate to, like Kate Bush and Joni Mitchell, and uh, interestingly, mostly women. And then slowly but surely... Um, being able to decipher how I would make my own records and yeah. then that starting and getting success here, failure here, success here, failure here and learning the roller coaster of life that is our industry. And are you, you mentioned there, are you a big Kate Bush fan? She's oh, half yeah. Irish, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. 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 I, th- I think she used to do Irish dancing growing up. That's right. I, I was lucky enough to have dinner with her a couple of times back in the day. I sent her She's quite reclusive. Yeah, yeah, she was. Um, but fantastic company, really musical and I went to see her concert then in 2014 in London. That was spectacular. Yeah, yeah it was great. Oh, that um, was the one at the Hammersmith Apollo. Yeah. 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 It was something else. So do you have any other, kind of, a lot of gay men have got obsessions with certain divas and female singers. Uh-huh. Do you have any other ones other than... Shirley Bassey currently. Um, I'm really loving her back catalogue and her story. Obviously, you know, Judy Garland. Oh. Hard not to be just mesmerised by that woman's catalogue. Um, who else do I like? Sarah Vaughan. Um, 
not all tragic, you know, but some, mostly tragic, of course. Uh, who else do I like? Dusty Springfield. Irish. Yeah. Wasn't she called, wasn't her name Mary O'Brien? Mary O'Brien, that's yeah. right. An extraordinary singer. I love Sinead O'Connor. You know, yeah, I, her I always voice wait is unreal. to hear what she's going to come out with next, you know. Um, I've gotten to sing with her a few times yeah. and various people. So I've been very lucky to duet with some of my absolute heroes or sheroes, as we say. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I did not get to sing with Aretha Franklin because she died before that opportunity came. Yeah. But hopefully Barbara Streisand, maybe that's probably the gayest answer I could give you. Yeah. Uh, you never know. We're on the same album, so we're getting closer. Oh, how's that work? On the It's a, a song of, of Secret Garden songs oh. I'm having dinner with tonight. Okay. And she recorded one of theirs and they included my You Raise Me Up. So it's on the same album. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So we're getting closer. Yeah. Barbara, we're getting closer. We'll keep talking about it. You might talk it into existence. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's what I reckon. And one other question. I was going to ask you about uh, the Simon Fuller connection, if that's okay. Yeah. So did you get to meet the Spice Girls as well? Oh, many times. Oh, really? And actually, one of the last times I saw them, we had just been in Lily's Bordello and it was a limousine. So I came down all the stairs with Jerry and um, who else? And Baby, I think. So jealous. And got into the back of the limo and off we drove to the next thing. Yeah. Um, I met them first at Simon's house party. Where all the artists were invited and Annie Lennox was there and... Uh, Gary Barlow at the time was being managed by Simon yeah. as a solo artist and these girls who were the Spice Girls who were about to release their first single and they were just these really funny cheeky little little girls and everybody ended up getting absolutely hammered drunk of course yeah. as, as you do at those parties and they were just good fun and they were doing dance routines up on the table and all that yeah. just being fun and then within six weeks yeah. that wannabe single uh, took off Kind of monster hit. Monster hit. Yeah. And, and I remember then I'd, I'd be flying to Manchester and of course then the girls would get on and she, of course mm. she's begun to date David Beckham so that's why she was going to Manchester so much. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I remember I remember saying, saying to me, how many records do you think they've sold now? And I said, I don't know. 10 million. He goes, exactly. 10 million records this year. Jesus. So then it exploded. I mean, mm. you know, he couldn't. That's when our relationship really faltered because you just couldn't manage anybody else properly. My it was record so was so time consuming. So time consuming. And if the girls blinked, it was world news. So he was quite rightly yeah. busy with all of that. That's what made him his fortune. So you got to hang out with Jerry. Jezza. Yeah, Jezza's I had dinner with favorite. Jerry as well in New York with, with George Michael's fella. I was singing on Broadway. Ronan Keating was singing with Elton John that night. And we all met for dinner. Mm. And uh, it was. Kenny was George's boyfriend then. Oh, that was his, yeah. Yeah, he was the long-term boyfriend. Kenny was there and Jerry was there because they were best friends and we had a lovely, hilarious chat about, she said, so have you made made up your mind yet? I went, what about? She goes, you know, boys or girls? I went, oh, boys. Because she said, when I met you last, you hadn't made up your mind. (laughs) I was like, that's right. Jerry was after you for a while then. You were a potential husband. I don't know. Maybe a potential shag, perhaps. I don't know about that. All the 90s gay boys are so jealous now. Are they? You're getting to hang out with the Spice Girls. Yeah. Um, and dance with Kylie Minogue. That's a good oh, one. Oh, wow. God, that's like yeah. gay boy heaven, isn't is, it? Is it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so finally, uh, what would be your best advice for... Sorry, I'm generalizing by calling that gay boy heaven. Most, but a lot of them. That's all right. Cliches. There's right. cliches like me. Uh, so what would be your best advice for anyone who is currently struggling with their sexuality and thinking of coming out what Mm. would you say to them here's what I would do I would either write a lovely card letter or an email right and and whoever it's directed at your closest nearest and dearest Mm. that you want to tell them about who you really are because it is 200% important to live an authentic life 
right? So, and, and what that means is you, you have to be out and proud to be able to live authentically. So I would uh, not confront anybody. I wouldn't do a face-to-face -face thing. And here's why. I would send the letter or the email and let that person have a, a reaction privately. Even if it's a, oh, Jesus Christ, what's going on here? We can't have a gay son or whatever, a gay daughter or a trans son or whatever it is. But then uh, my advice would be to, to just let the waters calm and let them come to you and say, OK, got your letter. And then if they're still angry, they're still angry. But um, sometimes I think when people are forced to give an answer to something, they say something that they then later really regret instead of you know, talking to a friend and saying, look, I got this letter from my son, from my daughter. What do you think? Or the, the dad and the mum are raging and then maybe they might say, look, but such and such a son is gay. Let's talk to them. How did that happen? And it just, I would say, try and create a conversation before uh, you then sit down, choose your moment, either have it publicly in a, your favourite cafe or you go for a walk with a bag of chips and you just go, okay, so what did you think of my letter? And hopefully by then they'll have calmed down enough to go, well, that, that was very brave of you to write that letter. Now, whether they agree with homosexuality or not is just the luck of the draw. It depends on which family you come from. Um, certainly, uh, it would be naive to say that there isn't homophobia out there. Of course there is. Um, so I just would wish any young gay people the best and just try and take it slowly and don't expect miracles immediately and see where you're at then. So you think writing the letter gives people a little bit more time to digest it? But they need to digest that information mm. because for some people that will be very shocking information and they need to go off in a calm environment and talk to a friend or look something up on the internet or, you know, just get another perspective before they come yeah. back to you with, with their answer. Oh, very good advice. I think so. Very I wise. think that's what I would have done yeah. had I have done it again. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Very, very wise. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. And thank you for being so open. Mm. Um, I'm just, you know, you've got such a, so many uh, traumatic experiences and harrowing <laughs> stories. I really, really feel for you. That's I, the, that's the, the cream of the crop. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time pleasure. and for doing the interview. And best of luck with all of your uh, future projects thank and you endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure.